This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Such Sights to Show, an all-things Clive Barker podcast. I am Joe Lipsit, and I'm joined, as always, by Mr. Brian Christopher. Hello, Brian. Hey, Joe. Just uh, standing in front of this mirror, and I was thinking I might say Candyman five times. <laughs> have you ever actually done it? Ah, oh, I don't know that I have. I want to say I've I've probably at least started. I don't mm-hmm. know if I've done done the full five. Right. Hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. just, uh, it's something that... Why risk it? Exactly. <laughs> you understand implicitly this is a fabricated notion. It's an urban legend, but like, I don't do Candyman and I don't do Bloody Mary. Because <laughs> like, what's to gain? Like, honestly. Mm-hmm. As, as horror fans, either we are in a weird way proving that Santa doesn't exist, mm-hmm. or... If he does exist, that's really horrible for us. So either way, it's not going to be, it's not going to end well for us. Yeah. What do you want to get out of this? What do you think you're going to gain? (laughs) (laughs) So folks, as promised, we are back with a little mini-sode to talk about in greater detail, Clive Barker's The Forbidden, which is one of the stories from Books of Blood, Volume 5. And then of course, it gets adapted by Bernard Rose into 1992's Candyman, which serves as a jumping off point for Nia DaCosta's 2021 reimagining slash requel slash sequel. Yeah, I am very interested to talk about the progression of this story from the short story to the original movie to the, you know, requel reimagining because I I do feel like it is a sequence or an evolution mm-hmm. that really builds on interesting ideas and yes. makes them better as it goes. Okay, big words, big words because of course we are avowed Clyde Barker fans, but yeah, I mean Let's dive into it, Brian. We touched on The Forbidden when we were talking about Books of Blood Volume 5 last time, but we sort of skirted around it because we knew we wanted to have this conversation. I really like the short story, and you seem like you thought it was okay. I really liked it. I enjoyed it. It's hard to separate it from what it's become. Mm-hmm. I do think it's it's very effective for for what it is as a short story right but it's it's kind of one of those things where there's a lot of it's almost baggage right yeah yeah and there's a lot of baggage with it and it's one of those things where because i think that baggage makes me question like are there undercooked ideas in the short story Mm -hmm. or is it just because i'm looking at how those how those ideas have evolved with the movies like if i saw this in a va- or if i read this in a vacuum it would probably be very satisfying but right. i think knowing how they've taken the ball and run with it and taken things that were only kind of like peaked at in the short story mm-hmm. then it just like doesn't suffer in comparison but you know i think it's just kind of making that reminder that just because the short story doesn't hit on the ideas that the movies do doesn't mean that it's not complete in and of itself Hmm. Yeah, if nothing else, it's a very successful short story, mm-hmm. but it is also 
a short story. So even though the logline is more or less the same, you know, we've got this graduate student, Helen, who is looking at poverty and crime. She ends up overstepping, going into this quote-unquote underprivileged or impoverished area, and she's chasing things that she doesn't have a full comprehension of to the point where she actually crashes a baby's funeral to try to get quote-unquote answers. I keep saying quote-unquote. It's just because like this is a person who should not be where she is and she feels so entitled to the truth that I can't help but like she's a bit of a challenging character in the short story but then you really amplify that when we start to move into that first film yeah yeah and and in the short story you know it is a slightly different context because it doesn't take place in america it is in right. i think liverpool mm -hmm. uh, and they're looking at this through the the lens of class yes it's still an impoverished community but they don't really bring race into the discussion but there definitely no. is still a uh, a discussion of privileged people sticking their noses where it doesn't belong mm -hmm. and making everybody's life more difficult in doing so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. And yeah, I think that absolutely gets amplified uh, in the movies. But yeah, it's definitely present here. And I think that Barker in the short story really takes his time in kind of indicting privileged, mm -hmm. wealthy academics. Right. You know, he, he he really takes his time in those discussions that they have. Absolutely. Yeah, as we said last time, it seems as though he just doesn't really care for academics and the mode with which they conduct themselves and do their research and so on. I think what I find most surprising about the short story, apart from the overall description of Candyman, which of course does not match my visual image of Tony Todd, which is iconic, but... We'll get to that in a moment. I remember reading the short story when Trace and I covered Candyman on Horror Queers. And I remember thinking that the short story was about urban legends. And it's really not. It's more mm -hmm. about how a community protects itself with a kind of cone of silence in order to keep outsiders out and to protect themselves. Yeah, I remember kind of the catalyst or the, the the topic that Helen is investigating in the short story in, in The Forbidden is more the graffiti. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the 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 hook. Wow, I just said that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that pulls her into this community. And yeah, I think that um, it's an interesting pivot to more look at the urban legend uh, facet of it when we get into the into the movies. But yeah, it is um I think it is more of a, a Barker theme that that idea of like the community and the, the stuff that's like lying just beneath the surface and the way that they're all kind of implicit in that because uh, it's bringing it's bringing to mind that idea of like because when it culminates in that that bonfire and they're mm -hmm. all kind of looking in they know what's going on they're all you know letting it happen you know different context and, and different ends but it, it did harken back to like rawhead rex for me to where you know okay. that the climax happens in front of the the whole town mm -hmm. so yeah I, I think that that that's something barker likes to explore that thing that like everybody is complicit with but right doesn't necessarily acknowledge in the light of day kind of thing 
Well, there's almost a ritual to both of those stories, right? Where Mm -hmm. there's a understanding that is almost unspoken of the people who are within the tight-knit community and outsiders or interlopers or people who are, yes, overstepping their bounds find themselves caught in the mix. It's tried and true horror tropes, right? You know, I'm thinking of the Wicker Man. Mm. And we like to do this as a way of shining a light. It's a bit of a warning, you know, hey, check yourself, but also... I love this idea that we can unpack the the ritual, the ceremony, the things that can go on that can develop between members of a close knit community. Yeah, yeah, and the 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 trouble you get into when you butt in, mm-hmm. and and the inherent kind of entitlement and privilege that comes with that. You know, right. the the idea of these communities that are doing just fine. You know, and and. I don't know if just find the right word when we're kind of talking about a an impoverished community, but they are moving ahead as best as they can. And mm-hmm. they are avoiding catastrophe as best as they can. And then, you know, the the, the the wealthy grad student comes in and messes everything up for them. Right. Yeah. So when we think about changes that get made for the film the most obvious one being that we introduce race into the mix. So now we're addressing both race and class. But I think I like this short story, but I love this movie. (laughs) And admittedly, I had not seen the original, the the 1992 version of Mm -hmm. Candyman. It has to have been a solid like five years since I've seen this one. Uh, right. Before watching again for this episode, and I remember having some some issues with it the last time I saw it, in mm-hmm. terms of kind of the the white savior tropes that you oh, get, sure. yeah, at least on the surface. And I think it's still there, but I think in in hindsight and watching it again, they're definitely giving you the not the breadcrumbs, but they are giving you the implication that the white savior here isn't an inherently good thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's showing all of the problems inherent to Helen butting in to this community and the problems that she is causing by being there. She, mm-hmm. in the end, you know, does the best that she can to clean up her own mess. But yeah, right. I think they, they do a good job at showing that like, she's the one, she's the catalyst for this mm-hmm. and that she is inviting calamity by sticking her nose where it doesn't belong and, and making life difficult for everybody else. Absolutely. I think there are some ways in which it's a little clunky in the 1992 version. Um, But I I do think overall, I used to have this perception that there was a lack of self-awareness in terms of Helen's character. Mm. I think the character herself is lacking in self-awareness, but I think the movie has a self-awareness about the ways in which Helen is kind of bringing this on herself and bringing it on the community. Mm Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. I'm sort of famously on the record as saying that the true villain in Candyman is Helen Lyle. And I say this as a person who absolutely adores Virginia Madsen, thinks that her performance in this film is fantastic. The chemistry she has with Tony Todd is off the charts. It's really good. But at the end of the day, yeah, like Helen is basically a white bitch who goes into a black community thinking that she can just do whatever she wants because she is a white bitch and she fucks around and finds out 
Uh, and I think there is a very good uh, article written by Ashley Blackwell of Horror Noir and of Graveyard Shift Sisters. It's called Looking Back and Hoping Forward. And it's about Candyman. And it's kind of her. Uh, she wrote this in between or right when Candyman 2021 was about to come out. Mm-hmm. So she is kind of setting the table for this is her interpretation of the 1992 version and kind of what she's hoping out of the 2021 version. Right. But she gives a very good kind of analysis of, of Helen in the original, where she says a recent awakening in my understanding of the function of this work looks into the film's residents of Cabrini green. They reverence Candyman by fearing him. If an interloper investigates in an attempt to neutralize that fear by being absolute in her skepticism, and Candyman shows up after her mocking his summoning to wreak havoc on her life. A severed dog head here, a mutilated hospital worker there, all because she tried to gaslight a group of black people in the know. <laughs> um, she really just like it's so succinctly done in terms of really kind of talking about it. It's centered on Helen, but it's not necessarily positioning her as like the the pure protagonist. Mm-mm. No, absolutely not. And one of the things that you get when you do repeat viewings of the film, it becomes easier to track the people who are trying to let her know that she is straying into territory she should not be going into. So, you know, I really come to appreciate Bernadette's reticence. Mm -hmm. So that's the Casey Lemons character where, you know, she doesn't want to go into Cabrini Green. And, you know, she's a very different kind of character in a film that is filled with fairly standard issue white people fears <laughs> of black characters so we've got you know thugs we've got men who will beat you up in a bathroom we've got a kid who maybe can't be trusted but i think it's really important to have a character like bernadette who is an intellectual black woman who can say no we're being fucking stupid helen i don't want to do this and I think the movie finds a lot of shades of gray so that even if you are looking at Helen as a bit of a fucking idiot for doing these kinds of things, <laughs> you've got other characters who are still checking her that helps to move, I guess, the the racial conversation that the film wants to have. Yeah. And, and Bernadette is very interesting to me because like, if you look at it slowly through the vacuum or through the lens of the movie trope of a black character dying in service of a white character, Mm -hmm. it kind of sucks. But if you look at it through the lens of this is a black character who is basically your giant neon warning sign saying, hey, we shouldn't be doing this. And you push forward and she is punished for it. Yeah. Then, you know, I think that is, is creating more of an interesting conversation than the way that trope is usually used. Mm hmm. So, in some cases, there's a one-to-one correlation between the film and a short story, but, you know, a lot of the time in the short, Helen is off by herself, whereas Bernadette is accompanying her for large portions of the film up until Helen effectively gets her killed, which I think is also a significant turning point in the film. You know, previous to that, she had been accused of beheading a dog with a hook. But like the implications there is that you're not going to go to jail. Whereas what happens with Bernadette fully lands Helen into a psych ward, presumably on her way to either staying there indefinitely or going to prison. It's one of those things where you're looking at 
Helen's culpability and kind of bringing this upon herself and the people around her. But because we're looking at it through the lens of her character, it's also so frustrating and like terrifying to -hmm. be in the shoes of someone who is everyone around her is like, Oh God, you have gone insane. You are a sick human being and kind of dehumanizing her. And I think I wonder to what degree Bernard Rose and company were doing that to kind of show kind of twist that lens of like, this is the way we often treat black people. Yeah. Now we're going to put you in that role. I don't know, you know, do we give Bernard Rose and and folks that much credit? Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that kind of what they were going for? Is this something we're looking at in hindsight? Like, I think that's always a recurring theme in the stuff that we're looking at. Right. Ultimately, I think there was a deliberateness there. Mm-hmm. I, I think that because this is, white people telling this story that's where i think a bit of clunkiness comes in because it is so kind of like overwrought and it is still focusing on the white character when Mm -hmm. there is just so much you could explore with the black characters and the black you know quote-unquote antagonist and candy man yeah because they keep it centered on helen it's kind of that idea of like you know we're trying to teach white people a lesson in language they'll understand Kind of. Right. And so they need to tell that through a white story. Yeah. I think it's also very much the 1992-ness of it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a time when studios were far more reticent. Like, I think in some ways this is almost a swing for a studio to say, okay, we do want to tell this very racially charged story where there was no racially charged element in the source material that we're adapting. Like, there were conscious, deliberate decisions made to say, we're shifting from Liverpool to Chicago to this predominantly African-American community that has a history, a real-life history of being quite violent, you know, besieged by gangs and this kind of stuff. So this is telling a very North American, very racialized story but we still need the movie to perform financially Mm. and open across the country. So let's put a white lady who looks very pretty. We can cover her in blood, but also still have her appear half naked in a couple of scenes. Mm. And, you know, we're going to make it safe. We're going to make it palatable, but we're going to initiate the conversation. And I do think it's fascinating that this is a movie that comes out, as you said, made by white people, A year after Wes Craven does The People Under the Stairs, which is effectively a variation of the same idea, you know, very interested in gentrification, except in that case, the white people are very deliberately the villains. And it's also interesting you mentioned making it palatable for white people, because on one hand, they do that through telling it through a white lens, but they mm-hmm. it's also because this is North America and I guess specifically America, they are not at all worried about making it more palatable in terms of like holding back on the violence. I no. forgot how brutal this movie is. We're it killing is, lots of people. <laughs> and it is um, – I, I remember like seeing this as a kid mm-hmm. and one of the things that stuck with me is the memory of like the flashback of the, the poor little boy right. who gets mutilated by you know whatever version of like the mythical Candyman they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I remember it being like 
it kind of like sticking with me as a very dark scene, but right. I, I, I thought it was one of those things where it was like, it was just dark because of the subject matter, because they, they talk about this like seven year old kid, like getting emasculated mm-hmm. and like literally. And yes. so I thought just the idea of that was what kind of like stuck in my head. And then watching it again, I'm like, no, they, they mm-hmm. show a lot. Like yeah. it is, it is the after effects, but it is horrific. Like this, this room is covered in blood. They've got this poor kid actor just like crying his head off in a way that's Mm -hmm. like, it's both brutal in terms of how the scene plays out. And then like, I also can't help but think like, how do they explain what's going on (laughs) to this little kid? The crying this kid is giving is Mm -hmm. just filled with like agony and fear in a way that's just like, did, did you just tell him? what he's supposed to be doing and like how scarred is this kid from like, cause they're not using CGI. Like he's no. in the middle of like fake blood. And like, I just remember seeing that and being like, Oh man, like 30 plus years later, that is still just an absolutely horrifying visual. Mm-hmm. Well, I own this on physical media. I bought this a couple of years ago and I realized I had never watched the unrated cut. So I have two different discs. One is the theatrical cut. So I watched the unrated cut and I'm pretty sure that the gore is amplified even more in this version because by the time we get to the end of the film, I remember Trevor, that's Helen's boyfriend. He's a an established academic. So he's a full-on professor teaching at the university where she's studying. And by this point, he has ditched her, moved in with a student. They've been painting the walls pink. And she comes back as a Candyman figure to gut him in the final scene. The bathroom where his body is in the uh, in the bathtub is just absolutely covered in blood. Mm-hmm. Like blood viscera this body xander berkeley it is chef's kiss over the top gore and i just thought to myself like wow okay we really went for it in this movie yeah i mean they do a similar thing with bernadette because i actually forgot her character gets killed and Mm -hmm. so seeing Mm -hmm. like the shock of being reminded of that and again they're showing the after effects but it is it is brutal it is so she is just absolutely obliterated yeah yeah So we've been dancing around the urban legend element of this. You know, we talked about how there's a ritual, a ceremony, a kind of closed offness in the community in the forbidden. But for Candyman, this gets escalated into full blown urban legend territory. And I do think that that's one of the smartest elements that the film explores. All of a sudden, it's not just about, oh, black people do things differently than white people. They keep them out. It's really the community has embraced this idea of racialized violence and turned it into something approaching a myth. And I do think it's fascinating. I don't want to keep bringing Wes Craven into the conversation because it's not his movie, but it always reminds me of a kind of black version of a Freddy Krueger. Absolutely. Which I think we will really, I I think the, the parallels only heighten when we kind of carry that into the 2021 version, because Mm -hmm. there are elements of that that are very reminiscent of the mythology of Freddy Krueger and and kind of how his power works as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love this idea of our monsters are only as powerful as we allow them to be in our memories, in our dreams, like we Mm -hmm. keep them alive. But also, I mean, 
I have to talk about Tony Todd, the voice, mm-hmm. the posture, the way he moves, the way he commands the screen in this film. Like, he's absolutely everything. But I love that his interpretation of this quote unquote villain, and now this is me using it, is deeply romantic like he is such a sensual villain and i love mm-hmm. the idea that we're we're sort of playing with a different kind of social trope where it's like oh it's the black lover he's you know so impressive but also he will fucking gut you yeah yeah it's almost bringing like gothic elements into oh 100 yeah because it gets very when he's on screen it gets like the the operatic mm-hmm. kind of score builds oh, the score he talks very poetically he he kind of talks in riddles mm-hmm. and his costume design like everything about it he is just this very kind of like almost suave antagonist mm-hmm. you know and i feel like as as hellraiser fans in the Venn diagram of antagonists or horror villains, I definitely think there's some overlap between Candyman and Pinhead in that they're both kind of very mm-hmm. erudite. Yes. And verbose. Yes. But not in the same way as like a Freddy Krueger where he's just throwing out like wisecracks. They are yeah. – you know, they, they wax poetic quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, imagine how much this confused a young Joe when he was just getting into horror movies to watch those two movies back to back, (laughs) Brian, and then be like, oh, every horror movie villain should be suave, gorgeously scary, very intimidating, emotionally complex, fiercely intelligent, and then going back and watching 80 slashers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that must have been must have been a little jarring to go from like someone asking for consent, like be my mm, victim, uh, right. to you know some burly hockey mask idiot just coming out and chopping someone's head off. I don't want to say it's a reason why I don't appreciate Friday the Thirteenth and Halloween films as much as other people, but yeah, I mean there is just something so fascinating and nuanced and interesting about these villains and part of me just always brings it back to Barker like the source material is there in this case I do think that Bernard Rose and Nia DaCosta are taking that ball and running with it because Mm. they're doing a lot of heavy lifting in these movies to make Candyman even more complex like I love me some Barker the description of Candyman is not at all interesting to me in Mm. the short story but again I can't help but think it's because I've already seen him visualized in multiple ways. And the visualization in this case, maybe for the first time ever, is so much more interesting than the written word. Yeah, no. And and it's it's also because, you know, and, and this is a discussion we've had on multiple episodes, that idea of, you know, reading the book first versus the film first. And, yes. and I think there's an inversion here where if we had had the opportunity to read the story first, then who knows how like the film version of Candyman might have suffered based off of what we had built in our own mind. Because usually that's what's really great about Barker in terms of like he gives like broad strokes of descriptions or such surreal descriptions that he is counting on your imagination to fill in a lot mm-hmm. more of that. Yes. 
But by the time we're reading this, uh, we have a very set image of yeah. who and what Candyman is. And so having something that, that leaves things more open for your imagination, mm. like we don't need that here because no. it's already been those, – those gaps have been filled in in such a compelling and great way that we don't have that craving for what our imagination can produce. No. And, you know, this isn't something that happens all the time because – I had seen Nightbreed before I read Cabal, but I didn't have the same kinds of issues. Like, yeah, I was sort of visualizing some of the actors and their manifestations when I was reading the novella, but it isn't cemented in my mind the same way that Tony Todd's performance is. Like, this is, to my mind, quite literally one of the most evocative horror performances of all time. Like, this is in the pantheons of the greats. No, absolutely. Yeah. As horror fans, I think we get a little bit uh, weary about the idea of something transcending horror mm -hmm. as if it's something that needs to be transcended. But I mean more exactly. in terms of like working its way into the mainstream consciousness, right. you know, and Candyman does that. You know, absolutely. you can say Candyman to someone who has never seen a horror movie before mm -hmm. and they'll be able to at least give you a basic like, oh, yeah, Tony Todd uh, hook in his hand. Like that is mm -hmm. going to be something that everybody knows. Yeah. Yeah. This was a really fun experience to read the short story, appreciate it for what it is, recognize it as a short story that's going to have, you know, specific limitations in terms of scope, character development, and all that kind of stuff, and then see how that gets transformed into this film. You know, the score, the camera work, these performances by our two main leads, and just the expansion of the mythology, it's just all so impressive to me. Yeah. And and I think one of the other kind of one-to-one -one depictions that really, I think, hits the mark from the page to the movie is the description of the Candyman mural. Oh, yes. So I think in the short story this mural is in a much more kind of traditional doorway, mm -hmm. um, but it's described really well. I think the way it kind of converts to it's more a makeshift door that's like a hole in a wall, right. but the way they visualize that as being kind of like this, this gaping maw of Candyman's mouth mm -hmm. is such a compelling visual. Oh and God. it's one where it's a lot of times we we talk about how when you try and kind of like translate that to the screen it falls short here mm -hmm. i don't think it falls short at all in fact no. i think it exceeds expectations uh because that is just such a almost overwhelming sight mm -hmm. well and thematically it is so resonant with what the film and the short story are trying to accomplish right like we're talking about oral legends and she literally comes through his mouth yeah mm -hmm. and it's wild yeah yeah, because it, it works thematically, but it's also, even if you don't get the symbolism, it's just such a creepy image, and it's just uh, so well-crafted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it. Okay, why don't we switch to Nia DaCosta's 2021 reimagining? I feel like this is a film that some people really latched onto, and I'm going to include myself in that. And then it didn't hit the mark for other folks. And I'm interested because you've already indicated you like this movie. 
I I really liked it when it came out in 2021. It was actually one of the first movies I think I got back into the movie theater for okay. um, mm-hmm. after the pandemic started. <laughs> Notice I didn't say after the pandemic was over because I think mm-hmm. we're still kind of in it. Um, yep. But yeah, it was one of the first times I felt like I wanted to get into a theater mainly uh-huh. if for no other reason than I wanted to make sure that I was supporting Nia DaCosta. Yeah, you were like, take my money, take my money. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I I liked it. I I think okay. yeah, in in my head I think I gave it like maybe like a B, B minus. Right. Uh like really liked it, didn't love it. Okay. Watching it again, I think I love this movie. Like okay. it's not perfect. Nope. And and I'm sure we'll talk about some of the areas where, you know, some of the flaws or some of the seams. But mm-hmm. I think the the best thing this movie does is that it actually makes the first one an even better movie because the way it expands the universe and kind of explains who and what Candyman really is, Mm -hmm. it takes some of the elements that were kind of lacking in the original and makes them make more sense within the larger context. Right. Yeah. I mean, the first and most obvious choice is that we decenter white people and we make black people the protagonists. But I do like that kind of in the same way we had the conversation about Bernadette. It's still like affluent, well-to-do people. You know, we've got the struggling artist, Anthony, played by uh, Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, was fucking great in this movie and i actually mm-hmm. i almost wish he was in it more because part of the way through the film shifts to his partner brianna or brie who is played by tiana paris and it becomes her movie because he's he's almost become afflicted with Candyman itis <laughs> right like he is being corrupted in the way that society allows black men to be right like we turn Mm -hmm. them into our demons and then we are forced to say their names after we kill them yeah and i think that point kind of starts to get into where the the themes of this movie improve the original because Mm -hmm. in the original you know there are questions about you know we're looking at this through helen's point of view and we're looking at this villain that is created by white people and it's kind of like this vengeful spirit but it 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 lashes out at members of its own community yeah you know and to to just question that like on the face of it is is almost kind of like the same thing as like well what about black on black crime Mm -hmm. but i think within the context of the the movie is that the original the 1992 movie doesn't go far enough to explain that Mm -hmm. you know it, it it just kind of created this this iconic horrible villain and let lets him run rampant but right. doesn't really explain like okay if this was created by racial violence mm-hmm. why isn't he attacking white people and i think that what the the requel what nia DaCosta's version does is explain because well we isolate black people in yep. these these communities um create this stain create this traumatic this this um generational trauma and mm-hmm. then we just leave them there and then right. the only way for that violence to lash out is the other people in that community. You know, right. and I think that by investigating that in this movie and talking about Candyman as like it's not 
you know, Daniel Robitaille is the inciting element and he is right. the, the origin of this, but he is not what this is all about. This is about the violence that white people have inflicted on black communities and then rig the deck so that the only, in some cases, people that they have to lash out against is each other. And mm-hmm. then we kind of point to that to say like, well, you know, this is what happens, you know, and, and kind of how, how full of shit we are in this whole process. <laughs> and then once the community does, and if this is a big part of this discussion of the, of Nia DaCosta's version is we wait for the community to like basically implode in on itself to mm-hmm. completely kind of like deteriorate. And then we go in and we gentrify it and we, yep. we use it for space that is more affordable for our own housing. And then we turn it into another white community. Mm-hmm. But in the case of with with Candyman as this entity of like, you know, racial rage about the atrocities that we inflict on these communities, it is it is a very tragic movie, but it also does come with that element of, okay, well, now that we think it's (laughs) just when you think it was safe to go back into the projects, like it is both tragic because of the way it that this anger and rage deteriorates anthony's character but it is also the way it is turned on the people that it was kind of meant to be turned on by the end Mm -hmm. of the movie it's that conflict of just like it's so horrible to see this happen to his character but kind of like there's a little bit of a fist pump moment where you see what he becomes directed at the people who deserve it yeah a lot to unpack here yes yeah (laughs) i guess I want to say something and then leave it and then talk about more of what you just said. So I think one of the things I like the most about the way that all of this gets visualized in DaCosta's film is the cyclical nature or the reflection, right? So we're doing a lot of mirror work. We're doing a lot of inversion of visuals that we saw in the original Candyman. So that film famously opens with a aerial shot as we're moving down the highway in Chicago towards Cabrini Green. And DaCosta opens her film and uses this recurring visual motif of traveling down highways but we're looking up at the gentrified skyscraper so it's an almost inverse image to what bernard rose did and i think Mm -hmm. it's lovely because it speaks back to the original film but it also says we're doing things in a complete like we're looking at it from a different lens this time yeah Yeah. like we're acknowledging what what came before but we're we're definitely looking at this from a different angle. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. But then to speak about the rage and how it manifests, I mean, I think one of the tricky spots that I still have some difficulty with narratively in this film is the Coleman Domingo character, William or Billy. So he's actually the one who is instigating some of the contemporary horrors, right? So he abducts anthony and turns him into Candyman, so that we can have our black figure who will become a myth and strike fear into the white art critics and the gentrified communities and yeah you're right you know it is the representation of the black on black violence and it's a manifestation of the rage from the people who get left behind the people who realize oh, uh, that man was scapegoated for putting razor blades in candy and then shot to death by the police. And we need to say his name and all of the other black victims of white crime. But it also doesn't make it easier because 
to my mind, the biggest issue with this film is it's got a lot of ideas and the runtime is just a little too short to unpack all of them adequately. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's for me, the the number one drawback to this movie is that there's not enough of it. It needs to be two hours. Yeah. Because it's, <laughs> it's 91 minutes, but that includes credits. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, horror author, horror journalist, Danny Bathia has a really great deep dive uh, that they wrote Candyman is sweet and sour for black women, uh, where yeah. they talk about a lot of what went into the making of the movie, uh, a lot of the bullshit that Nia DaCosta had to go through as the director dealing with white mm-hmm. people who, even as someone helming a major studio film, the ways in which she like just had microaggressions, the way in which oh, yeah. people dismissed her, you know, how many people called this Jordan Peele's Candyman, you know, and, and kind of oh, put him front and center. Yeah. Did that ever piss me off uh, when we were leading up to this film? <laughs> the fucking worst. But yeah, uh, Bethia really goes through just an absolute great deep dive. And, and part of that is talking about all the stuff that was left on the cutting room floor. You mm-hmm. know? And, and they really get into uh, Brianna's arc because you get these hints at the issues that she had to go with with her father and the way that this right. is kind of like trauma repeating itself uh, mm-hmm. with, with poor Anthony. But yeah, a lot of that stuff didn't make it into the final cut. And I think that that goes back to your point, Joe, where it's because there's so much going on and you get that shift from Anthony to Brianna, we didn't get enough chance to spend time with either of these characters long enough Mm -hmm. so that there is a little bit of like – I really would have appreciated getting a chance for both Brianna and Anthony to be able to breathe more as characters before yeah. we kind of get into the meat um, or as we're, as we're getting into the thick of it, just kind of being able to explore these characters more because mm-hmm. there's just such a, a rushed feeling to all of this. It's like the, the train yeah. is off the rails and how quickly it's going towards its destination, which you can kind of see coming. Yep. And I'm not saying that it's seeing it coming that is the issue. It's just that it's the journey was too short. Yeah, it it feels like we've missed a couple of stops that would have helped not just the pacing overall of the film, but making the things that we know are coming that much more satisfying. Because, yeah, I mean... Rewatching this again, I'd forgotten about this flashback of Brianna's where she sees her father, who was himself an artist, who died by suicide by throwing himself out a window. And it feels so out of place in the film because it it feels like it's there, but then it doesn't really inform anything, even though you can kind of understand what they're trying to get at. And there's actually an extended version of this scene on the Blu-ray or the 4K, whatever you have. But it's one of only three scenes. It says deleted and extended scenes. There's no deleted scenes. They're all just extensions. And it's frustrating because even with that, it still feels like the film is missing key components. And you look at who who contributed to this film. So we've got Wynne Rosenfeld. uh, This is a white screenwriter. We've got Jordan Peele, who is literally regarded as the moniker of black horror, contemporary black horror, and then DaCosta herself. So these are not stupid people. They know how to write a good movie. Mm -hmm. We've seen excellent films from them. So you can feel the studio meddling with this. Uh Yeah. Yeah, no, th- this has this has notes written all mm-hmm. over it. 
<laughs> yeah, like, can we get to the deaths faster? Can we make mm -hmm. it more violent? Can we make it scarier? And here's the thing. The death sequences in this film, all the Candyman visuals, they all sing. They're great. That's mm -hmm. not the film's problem. And when you watch the film, the scenes of the girls calling on Candyman in the school bathroom, it works, but it plays in isolation. So it ultimately ends up feeling choppy. So despite the fact that you're like, oh, okay, clearly somebody said, it's been too long since we've had a violent death. We need more Candyman in this movie. You're like, yeah, you put this in here, but we haven't done the work to build up to it. So it's an effective sequence by itself. But in the overall film, it stands out, but not in the right reasons. Yeah, like it, it's been it's been cut down so much that it, it's almost veering into like extended montage territory. Yeah, where it's just yeah. like a, a, a sequence of a series of scenes as opposed to like a full narrative thread. And mm -hmm. again, you you know that full thread is there. It was just right. that they got told, like, cut this out, cut that out, snip it. We don't need it. And yeah, I do want to raise a bit of a not a red flag, but I do want to raise the issue that this film, I believe, has a much stronger reputation among white moviegoers than it does among black and i'm i'm drawing this based entirely off of the reviews that trace and i found when we covered the film for our patreon but we saw a number of black critics who came down very heavily on this film for giving us a sugar-coated version of a familiar black tragedy storyline that they felt was still actually being aimed at white audiences yeah, no, I, I saw that too when I was looking up some of the uh, the, the critical response. Uh, I know Angelica Jade Bastian in a review mm -hmm. for Vulture. Robert Daniels. Uh, yeah, uh, she actually called it the most disappointing film of the year at that yeah. point, uh, saying that – what was the quote here? It limits not only the artistic failures of the individual who ushered it to life, but the artistic failures of an entire industry that seeks to commodify blackness to embolden its bottom line. Mm -hmm. Like, damning fucking words. <laughs> really, really strong. Like, yeah, it was unexpected, I'll admit. And it was kind of the most... This is going to sound very odd. It was the most white that I had felt as a film critic in a very long time because it was just so far removed from my own experience of watching the film. Like I sure. felt the pain points that you and I have identified from a storytelling perspective, but I didn't have the same kind of almost raging visceral reaction about like, no, I don't want to see this story. This story has been done badly that we were seeing from our black contemporaries. So it was it was an interesting experience to watch some of that drama unfold. Yeah, you know, and it's it's something to uh incorporate into my understanding of the film. Mhm. Mm I I guess for me there's a degree to which it's like I as someone who loves melodrama and and appreciates not appreciates but is not put off by movies that like aren't subtle and don't have nuance like right okay the issues with this movie being like too on the nose or like right. kind of like too preachy or or hitting the nail mm -hmm. on the head a little too hard didn't bother you i, I didn't, didn't bother me and i guess i'm also looking at it through the context of like this is still a mainstream horror movie right but <laughs> and mm -hmm. it it also sucks because like 
the the subtext there is mainstream means we're catering to white people in a lot yeah. of cases. A hundred percent. And so maybe it's just kind of like, I got to sit in that discomfort a little bit. Like, yeah, I enjoyed this movie because it was, it catered to me. Yeah. It was made for us. Yeah. yeah. It is an extremely unusual realization right because i think we're basically just saying the quiet part loud with mm -hmm. that we're not used to people saying oh well of course you would like this because it was made for you the white <laughs> yeah. audience member i think it's extra confronting because Candyman is such a historically black horror text right you know you you mentioned ashley blackwell obviously if people have not watched horror noir I mean, what are you even doing listening to us? You need to go and watch it immediately. Yeah. But that documentary does such a good job of establishing these key canonical texts and confirming that black horror is not a new thing. It's always been around. It's not a Jordan Peele thing. But, you know, the position with which Candyman occupies, like, it is one of the high marks, even though obviously it was made by white men. So, it was almost more confronting when we finally get a black interpretation of the text made by black creatives to then still see, oh shit, this is a movie made for white audiences. Yeah, yeah. It actually kind of reminds me of like a, a different flavor of that is, and, and bear with me here, mm -hmm. with the Thor movies, when Love and Thunder, like there was a really big deal right. made about how queer this movie was. Oh, God. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and it's being made by queer people. There's queer people involved. And then it's the, the final product is once again, like, queerness mm -hmm. for the mainstream, which is, you know, <laughs> queerness for no heterosexual queerness people. Yeah. So <laughs> yep. I wonder if it's a similar thing where because of this buildup where it's like, you no, know, there's a black creative team. It's centering on black people. You know, mm -hmm. maybe when, when black people saw that and said, like, yeah, but it's still a movie for white people, like – so kind of go fuck yourself a little bit. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I wonder if it's kind of a, a similar thing there. Yeah. You know what? I think it is exactly that. And it's especially frustrating when people finally get to tell their own stories and you can see that there's been meddling and interference by people who are just trying to make a buck off of your art. Mm -hmm. And this is literally a movie about art and black art like <laughs> it is woven into the fabric of the narrative the characters their relationships to one another the cyclical trauma and all of that so mm, it just gets me like i i still like you really really like this movie but every time i watch it i always have to reconcile the fact that this is still a movie made for me yeah and not the people it should have been made for yeah but all that said I, can we take a few minutes? <laughs> I love your silver lining tangent. <laughs> but I, I, I just want to take a few minutes and just like the degree to which Nia DaCosta, and I'm not saying necessarily by these by these critics, but just mm -hmm. by the world at large has been shit on. Oh, and, and not just with with Candyman, but like most recently with the Marvels. Like mm -hmm. Nia DaCosta is a really fucking good filmmaker. Like, yep. Say what you will about the the issues that Candyman might have in terms of like who the audience is and you know how how well it explores themes. I I personally love the way it explores them, but I will admit that it is coming from a very white point of view. Mm -hmm. But as a movie, you know, and and even even if it does have issues with the fact that it is too short, the the movie that she made 
in 80 something minutes and then, you know, mm-hmm. however many minutes for the, uh, for the credits is so fucking effective. And like yeah. the, the scene where the film critic gets murdered. Oh, my favorite death of the year, Brian. Oh my God. Like it comes out, of, not out of nowhere, but it, it, it catches you by surprise because it mm-hmm. lulls you into thinking like he got out, we're, we're pulling away, you know, what we think is coming, isn't coming. And then mm-hmm. it's like, up, oh, nope. Nope. No, nope, it, it, it is, but you're going to look at it from afar and you're going to have to like, you know, you're going to see it, but there is a, a degree to which your imagination is going to have to fill in some of these details because you're seeing it from afar. Mm-hmm. She's just like, she crafts really good shots and really good scenes. And that carries over into the Marvels. Like the MCU has, has definitely gotten to a saturation point for me where it's like, I'm not interested in a lot of this. They're way too long. Um, and they're not fun anymore in a lot of cases. The Marvels was fucking fun. You know, it and is. I think it's it true. suffered from the same issue that uh, that Candyman did where it was too short. <laughs> too short. It's been meddled with. Yeah. yeah. But it was still so much fucking fun. And I feel like every time now Nia DaCosta has a new movie coming out, mm-hmm. she she always has to be on the defensive. And and yep. it was on this mainstream platform, it only got worse because, you know, people were talking about, oh, well, she she skipped out and was doing editing oh, like bullshit. after the fact remotely. And it's like, yeah, everybody does that. <laughs> you know, and this was only after this got like pushed back like three times. Um, and she had other movies she wanted to work on. Like, who would have thought? Right. So, yeah, you know, then after the fact, this is turning into Marvel's biggest flop and yeah. Disney could not throw her under the bus fast enough in terms of, oh, it turns out there was not enough uh, studio interference. That's why this movie didn't pan out the way it should have. It's all total, total bullshit. We owe Nia DaCosta reparations for the way we have treated her. <laughs> she is an amazing director. I want to see more of her writing because I need to go back and check like her first feature. But yeah, no, like basically she is a prime example of how we as a society hate and actively cheer on the failure of black women. Yeah. If she gets put into director's jail after the Marvels, Again? I'm yeah. <laughs> I just, uh, I the the for me the only silver lining with that is like she's clearly already working on something else. That's where right. the controversy over that that she was doing the editing remotely mm-hmm. came from the fact that she was working on her next movie. So I I will be the first one in line to Absolutely. to buy a ticket because the Marvels was fun and yeah. After watching it again just this morning, I fucking love the new Candyman and I love what mm-hmm. it does for the the franchise overall. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm right there with you. I can't wait to see what she does next. And looking at these two films, yeah, they've got issues. But as we've said, the direction is not one of them. Like, maybe the problem is that we just need to leave her alone so that she can make her fucking films. Yeah, yeah. I want to, yeah, that's what I want. I want to see just one goddamn movie where she just gets to do what What she wants to to do. do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, why don't we close up our conversation of the Forbidden and Candyman there. Mr. Brian, if people want to sing the praises of Nia DaCosta, how would they get in touch with you? Uh, Please do that with me uh, at Evil Taylor Hicks, either through Instagram or through Blue Sky. 
All right. And if people want to chat with me, you can reach me at B Stole My Remote. That's the letter B. And of course, we'll thank the Anatomy of a Screen Pod Squad for letting us go off about how we as a society mistreat our black creatives. But Mr. Brian, uh, we are shifting gears dramatically after this. Mm. So we're leaving Mr. Barker behind, but we are revisiting the world of Nightbreed. So we're finally going to get around to discussing the short story collection Midian Unmade Tales of Clyde Barker's Nightbreed. I am looking forward to, to exploring the world of Midian more. Mm-hmm. I, know, I know Cabal is still out there in the wind, still trying to find their new forever home mm-hmm. uh, so yeah i'm interested to see kind of what uh what different takes different authors have on on what the monsters of midian might be doing in the interim mm-hmm. yeah i'm about a quarter of the way through this and i'm quite liking it there's a variety of different types of storytellers who are contributing to this and i'm intrigued to see how it comes together either as a collection or if you and i are going to find similar shared stories or if we will be on very different paths only one way to find out yes so folks uh let us know if you're reading along with midian unmade or if you have any thoughts on caney man or the forbidden but uh until then let nia DaCosta make a fucking movie here here squad.